Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the examination of the Lord Jesus as the Passover Lamb. Today's program is a continuation of the previous one when I was speaking about the examination by the chief priests. The Lord Jesus was the fulfillment of the Passover laws. The Passover laws were not just given in order to give us a way of commemorating or remembering the exodus from Egypt and the commemoration of the establishment of the nation of Israel through the giving of the law of Moses. It wasn't just about that. It was about foreshadowing what he would do in the future, not just what he did in the past, but what he would do in the future. And so in these programs, I am focusing on the specific circumstance where the Lord Jesus' ministry correlates to the selection and the examination of the Passover lamb. As he is declared to be the lamb of God, he's considered to be the Passover lamb. He is being examined by the leadership groups in Jerusalem to determine if he has any blemish. Now, of course, they're not checking to see if he has any broken bones or bruises or anything like that. They're examining him on the basis of sincerity and truth. That's how they are examining him, and they are doing this with questions. And so in the previous program, I was in Matthew chapter 21, where I was explaining what the chief priests were asking him. They were asking him by what authority... Was he doing the things that he was doing? He explained to them that his authority was testified of by someone else, and that was John the Baptist, and that they should consider believing the testimony of John the Baptist. But they did not really believe the testimony of John the Baptist. They were not willing to say that because they were afraid of what the people might think of them. Their fear got in the way of them testifying of what they truly believed. Now, the Lord Jesus answered their question of by what authority, inherently with his question, asking them what they thought of John the Baptist. But afterwards, after he explained to them that he was not going to answer their question in the way that they wanted him to answer their question, he followed this up and he said, but what do you think? In other words, he asks them a question. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work Today in my vineyard, and then continuing in Matthew chapter 21, verse 29, he answered and said, I will not. The son answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. Consider that, verse 32. You did not believe him. He publicly confronts them and says that they do know, they do know the answer to the question that he gave them earlier, but they were unwilling to say what they really believed, and that was that they did not believe 
that John the Baptist was sent by God. And you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. And of course we know that what he's speaking of is himself that the Lord sent the prophets before him, many representatives before him, and now he is sending the Lord Jesus, his son, the son of God. And then continuing in verse 38, But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. And what they are saying is true. That's exactly what happened. They killed the Lord Jesus, the Son, the Lord our God, who of course manifested in the flesh as the Lord Jesus. He gave his work to someone else. He gave it to another group of people, those who would embrace the new covenant. Continuing in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder." Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. And so he gave two parables, which are parabolic ways of describing the truth. The first truth in the first parable was that they were being dishonest with regards to what they thought of John the Baptist. And because of that dishonesty, they certainly have no real authority. They are certainly disqualified from the position that they are in. In the second parable, he explains that the Lord is just simply going to let them go. If they are not going to be a part of his work and they are going to kill his representatives, he's going to cut them off and he is going to work with somebody else. That's what he's going to do. The Lord is not going to wait forever for them to be a part of what he is doing. If you become preoccupied with what you are doing, it's very easy, it can be very easy, to miss out on what he is doing. Now, this is not unusual to this day. There are a lot of people who are in leadership positions in the Christian world who believe similar things. They believe, as the chief priests believed, that authority comes from man. That's what a lot of people believe. Now, they may not be willing to say that if they're confronted in the way that I just described. They may not be willing to really say that, just as the chief priests were not willing to answer the question of the Lord Jesus about John the Baptist, but they still may believe it nonetheless. 
There are a lot of people who hold this position, and there are indicators. There are ways of recognizing, of seeing that this is what a person really believes. For example, consider people who put a lot of value in credentials that are obtained at institutions, institutions such as seminaries. Now, what I do not want to say is I do not want to say that there is no value in obtaining credentials from seminaries. I do believe that there is value in that, and I do not want to discourage anyone from pursuing formal credentials from institutions such as that. But what I do not want to do is I do not want to encourage people to do that for the wrong reasons. There are many people who sincerely believe that when they get their credentials from such institutions, that that is what gives them their authority. This is what gives them their credibility. This is what gives them the right to speak of the things of God and to teach others about the things of God. When people take that kind of a position, I am not willing to support that kind of a position because I do not see that being in the scriptures at all. I see something else that contradicts that position. Why do people take that kind of a position? Why do people assert themselves and say, now I understand that not everybody does this, but enough people do this, they say that they have the authority to speak of the things of God because they have these credentials. They have a master's degree in theology or a doctorate in theology or whatever they may have and may list three or four different institutions where they got their credentials from. What are they saying? They're saying that they have been given authority from man, that that's where their authority comes from. Now, again, I certainly believe in higher education concerning that, but not when it comes to the subject of authority. I believe in the value of the education but I also believe in the value of God and his authority and to recognize that regardless of whether somebody has these credentials or not, the Lord can grant authority to a person, can grant a message to a person for that person to deliver to other people. The Lord our God is the one who truly teaches In the depths of our heart, while we may be able to learn things from other people, you can learn things from me, and I certainly can contribute to your faith to a certain degree. But there's a limit concerning what I teach, no matter how much authority I may have coming from the Lord himself. No matter how much authority I have, there is a limit concerning what I can do in your life. I can speak of things, I can teach things, I can expose things and reveal things and help you to understand things. But without the Spirit of God confirming and testifying within your heart, within your spirit, what I say means nothing. You must turn to the Lord your God. You must look into these things yourself. You must depend and trust in Him. I may be able to take away some barriers that prevent you from growing in your faith. I may be able to help you move forward in your faith. But there are some distinct limits, and I will not be able to cross those boundaries. Those boundaries are reserved by the Lord himself. He is the one who reserves the right and will always have absolute authority to grant authority to anyone when it comes to being a representative of him. When it comes to truly knowing him, he is the one who grants that. While many of us may be able to speak of it, He is the only one who will truly reveal himself to you. 
I can testify of him, but the revelation of him only comes from his spirit. Do we really believe that? It is written, it is written in a number of places. Consider John chapter 16. John chapter 16, I'll begin in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that the spirit of truth will come and he will guide us into all truth? When a person declares that because of their credentials, because of their authority that was granted by man, they have some special, unique authority of some kind overbearing or overruling others, then they do not believe this. They are contradicting this. Consider 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The things of God are spiritually discerned, and they are discerned by the revelation given to us by the Holy Spirit himself. You know, I think one of the reasons why people assert that they have the right or they have the authority to teach because they have authority from man, I think the reason why they do that is because they don't really believe this just like the chief priests. The chief priests did not believe in the authority that would be granted by the Holy Spirit. There are many people today who don't believe that either. There is also the creation of a barrier to entry in that sense. Now, the chief priests did not wrestle with this so much, but the religious leaders of today do wrestle with this because they realize that they have competition. That if there are other people If there are other teachers, other preachers, if there are other men of God who have authority from God and do not rely on authority from man, well, then they could be competition. And so in order to create a barrier to entry, barrier to positions in churches or positions in religious institutions, in order to defend their position, They will assert the necessity of having authority from man. They will assert that in order to help prevent their competition from coming in and taking their place. I know that this does not always happen, but it happens often enough. It exists with enough people that I believe it's reasonable to mention it, that it's reasonable to say that, that it does exist, and you should at least be aware that on occasion you may encounter someone who asserts themselves in this way. And if you do, you should have confidence, just as the Lord Jesus had confidence. Have confidence in recognizing that these people don't really have the authority that they may claim that they have, and that their accusations of perhaps you having no authority has no meaning, no meaning at all. Do not be afraid of these people. If the Holy Spirit reveals something to you, The Holy Spirit has revealed something to you. And this revelation, just in and of itself, is your authority to speak of the things that the Lord has revealed to you. Trust in this. The Lord Jesus has spoken to us in this way through the examination that he underwent. 
Now, continuing on this subject, the subject of the examination of the Lord Jesus as the Passover lamb, in Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. The Pharisees decided not to confront him yet. They went. They've already spent a lot of time talking with the Lord Jesus and pondering the things that the Lord Jesus has had to say, and so they're going to spend a little bit more time considering what they are going to ask him about. In verse 16, And they sent to him their disciples, probably just as observers, with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Now, what, what do they really mean by this? I mean, seriously, what do they really mean by saying these things? They say, teacher, we know that you are true. Do they really? I don't think they do. I think the first thing that they say is a statement of dishonesty, that that's how they begin their conversation with the Lord Jesus, the Herodians. They begin by saying, we know that you are true, and we know, that is we, us, we know that they do not believe that he is true. And he knows that they do not believe that he is true. And so they begin with a lie. That, to me, is not a good way to start a conversation with somebody. They continue and they say, and teach the way of God in truth. And of course they don't believe that. If they believed that, then they would become his disciples. They would follow him. They would repent, and they would believe. But they don't believe that. So they're continuing with their dishonesty. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Now, what I just described a few minutes ago with regards to the authority that is granted to an individual and that it only comes from God, that does not mean that I do not regard the person of men. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that I recognize men for who they are. I recognize us for who we are. And I recognize God for who he is. I recognize our role and our position in the world that he has created. And I recognize him and his position and his role in the world that he has created. That is what I regard. They were accusing the Lord Jesus of not regarding the person of man, and I don't think that this is an acceptable thing to say to the Lord Jesus. Because to me, there is no other example that's greater then how much the Lord Jesus regarded men, how much he regards us, how much he values us, how much he listens to us, how much he has an appreciation for who we are and for what he is doing in the context of what he is doing. I know of no one who loves more than the Lord Jesus himself, and that love translates very well into having a high regard for men, but his regard is in the context of who men are. His regard is in the context of the situation that we have at hand in the world that we are a part of. His regard is with regards to 
the condition of man and the provision by God for salvation. So his regard is the kind of regard that is different from what they probably want. But it does not mean that he does not have regard for the person of men. It just means that he does not have regard in the way that people want. You know, there are a lot of people who want others to see them in a certain way, who want others to relate to them in a certain way. And if they don't relate to them in a certain way, well, then that person is violating their values. That person is violating what they believe is true and right and holy. And so what are they going to do? Well, they're going to condemn that person. They're going to express their disappointment with that person. They're not going to hold that person in high regard because they are not being regarded in the way that they want to be regarded. And so for the Herodians to make this kind of an accusation to the Lord Jesus, how do you think he heard that? What do you think he heard when he had these Herodians standing right in front of him and telling him things like, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, but you don't regard man. You don't regard the person of man. How do you think he heard that? What do you suppose the expression on his face would have been in response to this? I'm interested in this. I would like to know if he showed them through some expression on his face what he really thought of what they were saying, if he let them know by his posture and by his attitude and by the way that he responded, if he let them know that he knew that they were a bunch of liars, that they were speaking to him in this way, if he was willing to let them know that he knew that. Continuing in Matthew chapter 22, verse 17, they ask, Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In verse 18, But Jesus perceived their wickedness, he did perceive their wickedness, and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Now this word hypocrite, I think, would be better translated as you actors, you pretenders, because that's exactly what they were doing. So in this way, he tells them directly, If not through the expression on his face, he tells them directly through his words. He tells them, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're a bunch of actors. You're a bunch of pretenders. That's who you are. You have testified against yourself that this is who you really are. And in addition to that, you are testing me with this question about taxes. Why? Again, in verse 18, but Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me? Why? Why are you asking me this question? Why are you here? Why? Why are you using your life in this way? Who do you really think you are? I mean, who do you really think I am? What are you doing here? But that's okay. He follows through and he entertains their question. In verse 19, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius and then he begins to give his explanation concerning taxes. Now, I am out of time for this program, and so I'm not going to be able to answer this question as well as I would like in the amount of time that I have left. But in the next program, I will spend some time talking about the significance of their question as it relates to examining him as the Passover lamb and as it relates to the issues at hand. But for now, what I will say is that their question really isn't about tax money. It really is about examining him. It really is about determining 
whether he is a person of truth or not. It's a question about trust is what it is. It's a question about who should we trust for our basis of civilization, for our basis of society. They are giving him an opportunity to testify of the truth by asking him this question, and he will respond and say that we are to trust in the living God for our basis, for our society. That will be his answer in response to this question, to examine him to determine whether or not he is a person of truth or not. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? That isn't the issue. It is another issue. It's a deeper concern. It has to do with who we are going to trust for the basis for our society. So when he answers the question, he doesn't give a yes or no answer because it really isn't about a yes or no question. It is about something much deeper than that that he will address through their question, whether they knew that that was the significance of their question and his answer or not. Whether they knew it or not, that's how he responded. That's how he took advantage of the situation. Now, I do not believe that they understood the depth and the significance of their question. I don't think that they understood that. To me, I think that they were asking this question expecting either a yes or no answer. They believed that they had found a question that they could give him that they could use to entrap him. Because, of course, if he says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he is declaring that Caesar has authority, that he is the king over the land, and that Jesus cannot be the Messiah, the king, otherwise he would be confessing that he is guilty of sedition. If he says no, then the Romans would see him as being guilty of sedition. And so that was the trap that was set for him. And I will explain this in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Thank you, man.